Uh, if you want to grab a Bible, there should be one around you or one on your device, your phone. Let's see what I need. Here we go. And we're going to the book of Revelation, which is everybody's favorite book. So it is. No? Yes? We have been in a series for the past few months called um, Apprentice, looking at the people who are closest to Jesus in the Bible and the journey of formation that they go on. And today I want to read a little bit from the story of John. Gary's preached on John, Johnny preached on John earlier in August. Today I want to read from Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 9. So listen now for the word of God. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, um, Smyrna, Figurum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, I, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Amen. And we stop there for today. Let's pray for a second, and then we're going to dive into these words and, and think about what God maybe is saying to us as a church family today. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to your people through your word. Shape us, our minds, our hearts, that we may become more and more like your Son. In Jesus' name, people of God said, Amen. Amen. There was a story in the news the past number of weeks and um, sort of came to a head this past week, the most horrendous, the most disturbing of stories about a nurse who was prosecuted for taking advantage of her position and her authority and murdering babies that were under her care in hospital. 
Did you see the story? She was entrusted with the most precious thing imaginable and she abused that trust. And it leaves us aghast, doesn't it? It leaves us lost for words. And yet at the same time, it feels like we're living in a season where trust in the trusted is being eroded. Whether it's a nurse in the health service or local MLAs who want our vote and yet are struggling to step into power to lead, whether it's children's TV presenters we grew up with, we find out had deviant sexual histories, whether it's historical child abuse amongst what we thought were trusted institutions, the Presbyterian Mutual Society scandal when we, we give our money to what we thought was safe and find out it wasn't being used properly. Church leaders around the world who've been leading global movements falling from power for all kinds of reasons. Feels like we're living in a season where trust in the trusted is being eroded. And this and other things, hyper-individualism, consumerism, all of that, has fueled a wave of what has been called deconstruction. The search for truth, taking things apart to try and find what's true within them. The problem is, are you to be trusted to determine what truth is? Am I to be trusted to determine what truth is? Why is my heart pure enough and my motives trusted enough to say this is right and everything else is wrong. Are yours? Just an interesting question to ponder as we step into this sermon today. Throughout August, we've been looking at the, the story and the person and the apprentice journey of uh, John one of Jesus' apostles, one of Jesus' apprentices, one of his disciples. He, he was nicknamed the beloved apostle, the beloved disciple, possibly by himself. Um, but the truth is, he was no picnic, certainly at the start of his journey. He was, he was really bad-tempered. He was nicknamed the son of thunder, or one of the sons of thunder. He, he was arrogant. There was a time when he saw people doing stuff in Jesus' name and he said, they're, they're, not, they're not us. Should we call down fire on them? Should we go and rebuke them? You know, it's his way or the highway. He was spoilt. He got his mom to go and ask Jesus, was he Jesus' favorite? Like, Come on, he's a fully grown man. He was no picnic. And yet mistake after mistake, he encountered grace upon grace. At no point did Jesus say, enough, get away from me. You're not good enough. He kept inviting him closer because that's what he does. And then we, we, we learned at the foot of the cross, John was the only disciple who was there, the only male disciple who was there. And looking up at Jesus on the cross, he, he experienced the overwhelming power of the love of God. In that moment, everything else fell away and he realized this God present in Jesus, I can trust, I can give my whole life to. And something began to shift within him or continue to shift within him. And John grew into someone who Jesus trusted. And this is where I want to go this morning. 
Jesus trusted John with his family. He said on the cross, John, you take care of my mom for me because I'm not going to be here to do it. Jesus trusted John with his ministry. John went on to, after the exile from Jerusalem, lead one of the biggest churches in the New Testament story in Ephesus. Jesus trusted John with his legacy. And towards the end of his life, came to John in the form of the Holy Spirit and inspired him to write five books that we now find in our Bible as part of Scripture. And the question I want to pose this morning is how did John become someone that Jesus trusted? And as looking at that part of John's discipling story, apprenticing story, thinking, how do we become people that God can trust? Not that we're ever going to be perfect because we're so desperately in need of the grace of God when we make mistakes, but, but how can we grow and be formed into people that, that he can trust? Three things, and we're running behind this, so we're, we're going fast, so stay with me. He, he, he was someone, he, he saw Jesus, he was seeing Jesus, he was sacrificing for Jesus, he was serving Jesus. So first one, John was someone who, who saw Jesus. You see it in this revelation picture that we're given. I was writing this sermon this week in um, Port Stewart in Three Kings. You know the coffee shop in Three Kings? Coffee's okay, but they do a really good breakfast there. Um, just was desperately in need of some salt air and sunshine, elusive sunshine. Um, so we were up the North Coast for a couple of days, and I was down one morning in Three Kings writing uh, a sermon this sermon. And where I was sitting, there was a picture on the wall opposite me of Port Stewart Harbour. There's maybe one going to come up on the screen. It was a photograph. I found myself kind of mesmerized by this photograph, looking and going, that's class. I love what they've done there. That's not the actual photograph. I didn't take a photo of it, but I couldn't. Yeah, anyway, go to Three Kings, you'll find it on the wall. A beautiful picture. Mesmerized by the, the picture on the wall, the photograph on the wall of Port Stewart Harbour. And then, like, it's like a, a, a duh moment, you know, uh, you know what I mean? I thought, actually, if I just turn my head 90 degrees to the left, Port Stewart Harbour's right there in real life. You know what I mean? I'd spend like five, ten minutes procrastinating my sermon, staring at this photograph on the wall when the real thing was right there. It's interesting, isn't it? It's cool. And, and there's loads of different ways I, I could bring that, but, but what I want to say is the picture points to the reality. Sometimes the picture points to the reality. In John's writings, uh, in his gospel, in his letters, and here in the book of Revelation, this apocryphal story, we, we see these different pictures that John gives us of how he saw Jesus, so we get to see Jesus through John's eyes. We see the miracle worker, Jesus, as he heals the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. We see Jesus, the one who invites him into intimacy at the Last Supper, where we see John lay his head on Jesus' chest. It's a real sign of intimacy and closeness that he had with Jesus. We see the sacrificial love of Jesus when John stands at the foot of the cross and looks always standing with the women who are there looking up at this, this man, God in human form, bleeding and dying on the cross. We see the hope, we were talking about hope earlier, we see the hope and the power as John is the first one to arrive at the tomb. He's the fastest apparently, he tells us that. And finds the tomb empty. 
because death could not hold him. He was resurrected from the grave. You see these different pictures of, of Jesus through the Gospels, through John's writing. And then what we see here is John as an 80, 85-year-old man, exiled to the island of Patmos, which is 35 miles off the southwest coast of Turkey, on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath, praying and seeking God. And he has this vision of Jesus, this picture of Jesus, and he knew Jesus on earth. He knew Jesus on earth. But what he sees here in this picture in Revelation is, is Jesus ascended and Jesus glorified at the right hand of his Father in heaven. We see in this picture that his eyes and his clothes are, are blazing bright, white-hot love, white-hot holiness, white-hot purity. We see the, the sword coming out of his mouth as he rules the nations. All of human history is under his authority, past, present, and future. And, and what does he say to him when he speaks? I was dead and I am alive. Jesus, or John knew that. John saw him die on the cross. John saw the empty tomb. John met the resurrected Jesus. But now he meets the ascended Jesus and hears him testify and say, I was dead and now I am alive. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. He's talking about the salvation work on the cross where sins are forgiven, where death is defeated, where the, the believer needs not fear the judgment of God, where the believer needs not fear death because Jesus has defeated death. He knows the way through death. He's got the keys to open the door. And John is terrified, absolutely terrified by the, just the, the ferocious beauty and power of this vision of Jesus. And yet Jesus reaches out and touches him. He says, do not be afraid. Come. See the intimacy again? At the Last Supper, laying his head on Jesus' breast, just the intimacy. Even here in this, in this ascended, glorified picture, you see the invitation to intimacy, to know Jesus. Come. Do not be afraid. I am the beginning and I am the end. And you're part of this story. John's picture reveals to us who Jesus is. John's picture reveals to us what Jesus has come to do. Um, there's an author, John Mark Comer. Um, many of you will have heard of him. You'll have read his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, he, he's written other books as well. Just saying. Uh, this is one of his best. God has a name. Uh, it's a remarkable story. It sort of riffs around that moment when Moses meets God at the burning bush and God reveals to him who he is. It's, it's a cracking story, cracking book. But John Mark Comer, who is a Christian author, speaker, pastor, um, he wrote the book because he said he was sick to the back teeth of meeting people who, who said, yeah, I believe in God. And John Mark Comer says, tell me about the God you believe in. And they start to describe him. And he says, they're not describing the God of the Bible. They're describing the God they've made up to suit their own lifestyle, their own agenda, their own desires, their own needs. He was from Oregon. He said he was so sick of meeting people who said they believed in God, but the God they described was liberal with money and liberal with a sexual ethic and allowed you to do whatever you wanted to do. Maybe if he was from Belfast, 
His lament would be meeting people who describe God as a middle-class Protestant with soft unionist values. Who knows? You see, we don't have to guess what God is like. And we certainly should not be making him up to suit our own needs and our own agendas. Scripture tells us what God is like. The word of God is the revelation of God. Through the story of Scripture, he describes who he is. And that story comes to a climax in the person of Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that the Son, Jesus Christ, is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? Don't go to your imagination. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Read through the story of John. See the pictures that that the Holy Spirit gives to John to write down to show us who Jesus is. Look at this picture in Revelation. This is who Jesus is today. John came to be trusted, not because he was perfect and not because he didn't make mistakes. He always made mistakes. But he came to be trusted because he got to know who Jesus was, not simply who he wanted Jesus to be. That's my first thing this morning. As we grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus, we mature as disciples. Are we seeking the God of the Bible? Are we surrendering our own desires and our own ideas and saying, Jesus, this is what you're like? Not to suit my needs, but this is who you are. This is what you're like. Are we willing to trust the word of God to reveal to us the person of God? You with me? You still tracking? Okay. John was somebody who who saw Jesus for who he was and, and, and that was the Jesus he followed. That's the Jesus we're invited to follow. Second thing is, John was someone who was willing to sacrifice for Jesus. John was someone who was willing to sacrifice for Jesus. We, we, we see this when he even just starts this little bit of the letter. He says that, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. You know, there was a survey came out of the States recently um, that was looking at sort of major world religions and the drop-off rate um, of of children into teenagers into adults, the, the drop-off rate in the different major world religions. Who was able to carry their faith from childhood into adulthood? Do you know what world religion had the lowest dropout rate? Judaism. Judaism. And they reckon that part of it, there's different reasons for it, but they reckon one of the main reasons is that in Judaism, parents teach their children you are different from the rest of the world. You're not the same as everybody else. You shouldn't try to be the same. You shouldn't try to fit in. You're different. You're called to be different. Life is going to be hard. You have to be willing to endure disappointment and even rejection. They laid that out for their kids at the start. And so the kids don't become disillusioned with it as they grow up. Of course, there's still drop-off, but but less so in Judaism because of that. It's interesting. 
wonder, is our goal for our kids that they fit in? Or they stand strong for Jesus? Even if it makes them different? It's interesting. John was someone who knew what it was to to suffer and to, to sacrifice. Life was hard. He was leading the church in Ephesus for the biggest part of his life. It was a really successful church. It was incredible. But as Roman persecution increased, as Jerusalem fell, as the temple fell, as persecution rippled over the known world, John was arrested and tried under the Roman emperor Domitian. Tertullian, who's a, a church historian, tells us this isn't in scripture, but this is one of his writings. So you, you can weigh that whatever way you want. Um, he tells us that John was brought to Rome, was tried by the emperor, was, was persecuted. He was covered in burning oil, but miraculously suffered no ill effects from the torture. And then he was sent to the Roman penal island of Patmos, which was 35 miles off the coast of Turkey. It was volcanic rock. It was bleak. It's not exactly how he planned his retirement, if you like. Like how many of you guys are coming up to 65 thinking, yeah, exile on a volcanic island with no one to talk to, no mobile phone service, no Netflix, no golf, no golf. John had known sacrifice before. He had known loss before. As a young man, Jesus had walked by his family business and said to him, I want you to come and follow me. And John had sacrificed his family business and the understanding of his family, I guess, in that moment and financial security and all those things to go and and follow Jesus. John had known sacrifice when he stood at the foot of the cross, risking his own life to be there, to show his, his support, his oneness with Jesus as he watched him die and bleed to death on the cross. John had known sacrifice when he watched the church be in exile from Jerusalem and persecution breaking out. And, and here, he had known sacrifice for his faith. All he had to do was deny Jesus. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut. Instead, 80, 85 years old, exiled to a piece of dead rock off the coast of Turkey. Today, Christians still know sacrifice. Sometimes it's persecution, direct. I guess in this country, we don't experience a lot of direct persecution, but in some parts of the world, some of the the Christians that Noah and Susie got to work with both in Athens and here in Belfast, know what it is to grow up in a country where your faith can lead to persecution. Maybe it's different for you. Maybe you know what it is to be passed over for promotion because of your Christian values. There's certain things in work you won't do, so your boss has left you on the shelf. Maybe as a teenager, you've not been invited to those parties or to those places because you've taken a stand for your faith and yeah, it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's hard. It's hard being different. It's hard feeling left out of those things. I get that. Maybe, maybe it's not persecution as such. Maybe, 
Maybe it's living with unanswered prayer. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life or your family or your body and you're, you're crying out to God for a move of his spirit, for a miracle, for something. And it feels like you're knocking against the door of a silent heaven. These are all different circumstances. It's easy to become embittered. It's easy to become despondent. It's easy to give up. But there's an alternative. There's an alternative. You can keep choosing Jesus. The Jesus you've learned about, the Jesus you've gotten to know, the Jesus who you've worshipped, the Jesus who you've seen answer prayer in the past. You can keep choosing Jesus. One commentator writes, I love this quote, endurance becomes the spiritual alchemy which transcends suffering into royal dignity. Endurance becomes the spiritual alchemy which transcends suffering into royal dignity. Something happens within us that, that we can't fully, logically, rationally make sense of. When we go through sacrifice, when we go through suffering, when life is really hard, and instead of turning in on ourselves, we turn to Jesus. We endure what we're being asked to live with and we say, I am going to keep my eyes on you. I am going to keep trusting you. I am going to keep seeking you. I am going to keep loving you. John has done everything right, almost everything right. And he finds himself at the end of his life exiled in this barbaric place. And on the Lord's day, what's he doing? He's choosing Jesus. He's praying. He's saying, I will still seek your face no matter my circumstances. I will still trust that you are faithful and that you are good in spite of my circumstances. And what does John discover in the midst of that as he turns to seek Jesus? He finds Jesus reaching for him. He has this most incredible vision, this most beautiful picture of Jesus, of who he is. I love the story of Corrie ten Boone. Any of you read the book, The Hiding Place? If you haven't, please, please buy it and read it. Or if you're lazy, download it and listen to it in Audible. It's okay too. It still counts. Corrie ten Boone um, was a Jewish background Christian Jesus follower during the, the Second World War. Her family were arrested by a Nazi regime, put in a concentration camp. Her, her dad died there. Her sister died there. She lived in the most horrendous circumstances. There were fleas in the bed. They didn't get enough food. They were just ridiculed and made fun of. She knew that people were being brought to be executed. And yet, Corey had managed to smuggle a little Bible into the prison with her in Ravensbrück. Ravensburg. And she chose to seek God in that place. 
And she chose to minister to the other women around her in that place, to pray with them, to encourage them, to help them, to love them, to serve them. And she talks about, she testified for years afterwards, in in spite of the most horrendous circumstances, she had the most profound encounters with Jesus in that place. As she chose to look to him, she found him reaching for her. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans writes, we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. There's that word again. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. What are you living in today? What are you struggling with today? What are you sacrificing today? Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? There's a, there's a couple of prophetic pictures that, that came up in the, the prayer time this morning. One was that sense of people, someone who's going through something and, and you need to trust that God is going to make a way through it. God's going to make a way. He hasn't abandoned you. The other was a picture, I can't remember the name of the, the building, but it was this um, beautiful building, but at the front of it, there was these two cannons, you're kind of decorating the, the front walls and the front doors, these two cannons, and the sense that maybe you need to let your guard down, let some people in. You're not meant to journey this by yourself. You're not meant to go through this thing you're going through by yourself. Look at the family around you here in Orangefield. Share that with somebody. Let them in. Let them help you. Is that for you this morning? John saw Jesus and kept seeking him. He he was willing to sacrifice for Jesus and not take his eyes off him. And then finally and quickly, he was someone who served Jesus. Verse 11. Where am I? I can't even see my own Bible. Jesus appears to John in this vision and he says to him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Send it to the church. Send it to Orangefield. Do you ever think John, if he hadn't ever left his job to follow Jesus, would never have gone on to help establish and lead the church in Ephesus where they reckon saw about 80,000 converts. Isn't that incredible? Do you ever think that if John hadn't risked his own life to go and stand at the foot of the cross with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the others, if he hadn't been willing to do that, Jesus would never have caught his eye and said to him, I want you to take my mom into your house and I want you to care for her. I want you to look after her. Jesus trusted him with his ministry. Jesus trusted him with his own family. And then without being exiled to the island of Patmos, simply for loving Jesus and being faithful to him, without losing everything, maybe John wouldn't 
have been able to have that undistracted time on the Lord's day because of all the other things that were going on in his life, but there on a piece of volcanic rock in the middle of the ocean, what else do you do? But fall on your knees and seek God. And because of his circumstances, he was able to seek God in a fresh way and an undistracted way and in a deeper way. And in that place of seeking God had this vision of Jesus saying to him, write this down in what became the scroll and then the book of Revelation that has been such a blessing, granted a complicated blessing, but a blessing to the church for the past 2,000 years. There's a story in the Bible that Jesus tells a parable about... um, uh, a, a landowner who goes off on a journey, but he gathers some of his, his, his servants and he says to them, I want you, I'm going to give you this amount of my stuff and I want you to, to look after it and steward it. And he says to the next one, I'm going to give you this much, a bit less of my stuff. I want you to, to steward it well. He says, I want you to the third one, I'm going to give you this much of my stuff. I want you to steward it well. Lots and a middle bit and a small bit. And he comes back um, weeks, months, years later, and speaks to these three servants of his. And and the first one had thought, I'm going to do with with what I've been given exactly what Jesus would do, what the master would do. And he saw it multiply and grow. And the master, Jesus said, well done. Here, let me give you more responsibility. And to the second one, the same thing. He thought, I'm going to do exactly what Jesus would ask me to do with what I've been given. Even though it's less than, I'm still going to do my best with it. And Jesus says, well done. Let me give you more. And the third one was lazy, was selfish. I don't know what the motives were. But when he came back, when the master came back, and found that the servant had simply abused and ignored the gift that he'd been given, the opportunities he'd been given. He was indignant. He was cross. Can I tell you a story, and then we'll finish? I'll bring the band back up as I tell this. Um, There's a guy in this church. He's given me permission to share the story, so I'm going to share it. There's a guy in this church, uh, or was in this church, Robbie, and... Robbie grew up here, came through, through church. Um, he, he didn't love school. He's happy for me to say that. He didn't love school. Uh, and when results came out at the end, he, he hadn't done as well, maybe as some others had done. So with some in church went off to university, those things. Robbie stepped into a, a working job, a world of work, got a job. Um, and it was a really good fit for him. He, he enjoyed it. He did well. He was making a good living. He, he got engaged. He was going to get married. But... All along, he had this thing in his head that he loved working with young people. He would volunteer over in Clondoff with the kids over there. He would do stuff around church. And he just had this growing sense within him that God was saying to him, I've given you a gift in the ability to work with young people, particularly young people from difficult backgrounds. And I want you to use that gift. And so just on the mouth of getting married, which this sounds mental, probably mental to his parents, it was, you know, he, he just felt this conviction that he should stop his job 
and go to university and train. Now, he, he, he didn't like school, and he didn't think he'd like university, but he could, this was the pathway that he felt God was calling him to take. And so he, he risked everything. Sacrifice, financial security, and reputation, everything. And he, he followed where God was asking him to go, to serve in the way that God was asking him to serve. And he did three years at university. He was on placement here for three years and, and knocked it out of the park as a student youth worker here in church. Absolutely smashed it out of the park. And graduated with a really good degree and has now went on to a full-time youth ministry job in a neighboring church. Because he was willing to trust God's leading and to do everything he could with the gifts that God had given him and not be scared to sacrifice on the journey. Robbie's one of a number of people. We, we've had students, youth workers, we've had interns here. I think on last count, five of them through the training process here have gone on to full-time youth work jobs. Isn't that class? Isn't that cool? What does it look like? It doesn't have to be in full-time Christian work. What does it look like for you to take what you've been given as a teacher or in finance or in IT or as a team leader or in customer service or working for the council? What does it look like for you to take what you've been given and say, God, how do you want me to, like, how do you want me to use this really well? If you were doing this, Jesus, how would you do it? And then no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the journey, say, I'm going to do it the way you would do it, Jesus. John became somebody that Jesus trusted, not because he was perfect, not because he didn't need forgiveness and grace. He did need those things. But because he was willing to see Jesus for who he was in spite of his circumstances, because he was willing to count the cost and make sacrifices and even endure suffering for Jesus and to keep his eyes on him in the middle of it. And because he was willing to do the things that Jesus asked him to do, to take what he had been entrusted with and to use it for the glory of God and to tell the story of God and to bless other people. And because of that, we have five books of the New Testament. Let me pray. Maybe you're in a season of seeking. Father, I pray for those who come with questions today about who Jesus is. And I'm aware that those answers, the truth of those answers, have the power to disrupt our lives and to lead us into places we weren't expecting to go. But I pray for those who have questions today that you will open their eyes to the Jesus of Scripture. That you will sanctify our imaginations, that we will see you, Lord, as you are and not simply as we want you to be. And maybe some seeing Jesus for the first time today, I pray, come and work a salvation in their hearts as they step into friendship with you, as they trust in you.
If you're someone who's seeking Jesus, stay in that place. Let me move on in the prayer though. Because some of you I know are in a season of suffering. I'm your pastor. I know some of what's going on in some of your lives. I know it's a season of suffering. And we're praying for miracles and we're praying for healing. We're praying for reconciliations. And sometimes those prayers are answered, Lord, by you and your grace and wisdom. But sometimes you say, my grace is enough. Sometimes you say, you get me. And so I pray, Lord, for those of us who are in a season of sacrifice and suffering, that you will help us to keep our eyes on you. And as we do, we will find you reaching for us and putting your arms around us and strengthening us and loving us. And some of you, most of you, maybe all of you are in a season of serving in some way or another. And so prayerfully, I give you this question to hold before the Lord. What has God entrusted you with? And how are you carrying it? Jesus, we love you, but not nearly as much as you love us. Thank you that you are the God who who came to earth and lived for us. Thank you that you're the God that came to earth and died for us. And thank you that you are the God who again and again and again in Scripture and in history and throughout even our lives and even this morning, you are the God who is reaching for us and seeking us. And we bless you and we praise you and we worship you now in this, our closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.